Good morning, everybody. It's great worshiping with you and see some new faces. Welcome to Calvary Chapel and uh, welcome to uh, kind of a Christmas Christmas season with us. It's kind of special, that's for sure. Um, and uh, we'll be doing a special service on Thursday evening, but um, we're just continuing through our study in 2 Corinthians today. Uh, if you want to go ahead and stand and open up to 2 Corinthians 7, uh, we're going to be reading verses 8 through 11. If you want to follow along with me. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Let's pray. Lord, as we will learn today, so often we are confronted with our sin, whether it's through reading the Bible or talking to a friend and being just corrected by a friend or rebuked by a friend or having just the internal conviction of your Holy Spirit. And, and as we are face to face with our sin, Lord, we might be sad about it, but how true that so many never repent from it. And Lord, we just would pray that the spirit of the living God would just be moving in our midst, every one of us, myself included, and working in our hearts such a deep work that we would truly mourn and weep and grieve over our sin and what it has done to your, your glory and your great name, what it has done to our relationship with you. And Lord, that you would just put such a work in our heart that we would turn from that sin to pursue righteousness and to perfect holiness in the fear of God. Do a, an incredible work, Lord. That new people here, Lord, perhaps you've brought just for a time as this, God. And Lord, we would just invite you to do a work in us. We would pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. And uh, of course, should have probably been announced a bit earlier before our reading. But if you don't have a Bible on you, lift up your hand and we'll get one to you. Um, we have uh, less scriptures on the screen today and we'll be flipping to a few more verses than normal. Uh, so good to have the text in front of you uh, this morning. Now, verse... Uh, Verse 8 said, even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, although I did regret it. I 
know that my letter made you sorry, even if for a little while. And uh, if you've been with us much at all uh, these last few weeks or been at a Wednesday night, you know that Paul's relationship with the Corinthians had been a little bit strained. They were a church that was known for being a carnal church, a church that was uh, oftentimes uh, living a double life, living a life of hypocrisy, living a life of compromise, uh, living a life of um, sexual immorality and idolatry and bitterness and pride and you know suing one another and the list goes on and on and on and Paul wrote the book of First Corinthians as a bit of an exhortation to them and uh, it's believed that that was not received well and in fact in the book he says do I need to come to you with a spanking <laughs> you know it's it's like man I got some hard some hard correction for you uh, it's believed that they didn't receive that letter very well and so that Paul went and made a personal visit kind of impromptu, didn't really give any warning, you know, for them to clean the house and put some snacks on the table for him, you know, he just kind of showed up and confronted them like, what's up, man, you know, and, uh, and th that was a, a rough meeting with them. In fact, during that meeting that a man leading some men rose up against Paul and slandered him and led a rebellion against him uh, to where Paul would eventually write 2 Corinthians where he's defending his apostleship against such men. Uh, but uh, in that time, he knew, man, I, I, I got to make things right. And so he wrote another letter to them, and it's a letter we don't have in the scriptures, and it's kind of called Paul's letter of sorrow. And it was a letter that he wrote that he says he just was weeping as he wrote it, not to make them feel guilty, but to let them know, I love you guys, I care for you guys. And in a sense, the letter was stained with his tears, and the ink was smeared with his tears. It's called the letter of sorrow. And he didn't take it to them because he knew, I need to give these guys some space, this church some space. And he sent it by the hand of Titus. Um, and so that's just a bit of the history there. And so he, in our verse today, he, he's talking about, man, I, I know that I made you sorry in, in my letters of confrontation and my letters of sorrow. Uh, I kind of regretted it, you know, after you kind of write something and hit the the send button on an email, you know, or on Facebook, and you're like, oh, I shouldn't have, oh, or should I have done that? I don't know, but I'm not ready to have done that, you know, and then you can't sleep at night, and, you know, Paul says that I was so anxious, like, outside was all kinds of stuff going on, and inside was all kinds of stuff going on, and I don't know if I should, oh, and he says, okay, okay, I, I should, I, I'm glad that I sent that, although I kind of regretted it at the time, but, but I know that that letter made you sorry. I know that I made, it made you sorry. And verse 9 says, now I rejoice. So first I was like, I don't know if I should have sent it, but now, oh, I'm so glad that I sent it, not because you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. And so it's just a, a basic Bible study rule. Whenever you see repeated words and phrases, it shows you that that's, that's the main point and the main gist of the text. And so we're going to continually see the word sorry, 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 sorrow, sorrow, repent, repent, repentance. And so today's title is 
Godly sorrow produces repentance. Now, godly sorrow, as Hodge put it, it's being sorry after a godly sort. It's a godly sort of sorrow. Now, before we get into what godly sorrow is, let me just give you a few things of what godly sorrow is not. Verse 10 also calls this worldly sorrow. So uh, uh, worldly sorrow or ungodly sorrow. First of all, it's being sorry only if you've gotten caught. Or being sorry because you are caught. That's worldly sorrow. That is ungodly sorrow. Get caught. Oh, (laughs) worldly sorrow is being sorry that you'll be punished. Being sorry that relationships have been hurt. Being sorry that you'll have to spend time in the slammer or that you'll have to pay the fine. Or that you'll have to make amends. Being sorry that you'll have to escape consequences of sin now. Well, this just opens up a whole bunch of stuff i got to get out of. That's ungodly sorrow. That's worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow produces many tears at times. Many wells and streams of tears. You've heard it called crocodile tears. There's snot on the face. and uh, uh. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're genuinely sorrowful in a godly sort. Worldly sorrow is a self-centered sorrow. It's a self-pitying sadness. It's a woe-is-me kind of sorrow. Worldly sorrow, as our text says today, shows no repentance afterwards. Maybe for a short sprint of time there's repentance, but not long after, the sin is picked back up again. What real sorrow is not is confession without repentance or a mental assent without a heart change. That's all worldly sorrow. That is all ungodly sorrow. Now, I keep using that word repent or repentance, and what it really means is a change of mind. You've had a change of mind. It means a change of direction. So I was going this way, and then I pull an about face or a 180, and now I go this way, and I stay going that way. A change of mind and a change of direction. It reminds me of the man who worked at a lumber yard and was just so distraught and so convicted, and so he went and saw his priest. And he brought confession before the priest, not something we do here, but uh, brought confession before the priest. And he said, you know, Father, I've 
been stealing lumber from the lumber yard that I work at, and I'm just overwhelmed with guilt. And, and the priest says, how much have, have you been stealing? Well, enough to build myself a house, my daughter a house, and my two sons a house. And the priest says, oh my goodness, that's overwhelming. That, that's so much lumber. I don't even know what you need to do. What, what kind of penance do you have to do? Something we also don't do here. What kind of penance do you have to do? He said, have you ever considered a retreat? And the man, overjoyed, said, hey, you provide the plans and I'll provide the wood. <laughs> Not godly sorrow, right? Not true repentance. A godly sorrow is a sorrow that leads, our verse says, first of all, it leads us to repentance, Okay, so just consider that. Sorrow in heart, and it takes us there. It leads us to an about face. It leads us to a change of mind. It leads us to a 180. It's sorrow that leads to repentance. It's sorrow that our verse says is godly in manner. It's godly in manner. It's coupled with confession and forgiveness in a divine way. As Psalm 32, verses 4 through 5, David is writing about his sin with Bathsheba, and after the whole confession, repentance, and being on the tail end of forgiveness now, he says, just God was in it. He says, day and night, God's hand was heavy upon me. God was in it. Not letting me get away with it. Not letting me just sweep it under the rug. Not, not letting there be a statute of limitations. Ten years goes by, I'm still guilty. Twenty years goes by, no one else knows about it, still guilty. The hand of the Lord is heavy upon me. I drench my couch with tears, David says. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. That's the Lord is doing that. It's godly sorrow. And so I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. Godly sorrow, the heavy hand of the Lord working in the life moves him to acknowledging his sin before the Lord. My iniquity I have not hidden. I picked the rug up and cast it aside and said, there it is, Lord. I'm not hiding it anymore. I can't hide it anymore. You, you won't let me. And so I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave my iniquity and my sin. Godly sorrow that brings repentance. It's godly in manner. Paul says, so that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. Godly sorrow preserves the ministry fruit that the apostles and godly leaders and ministers have been working in your life. And we need to note that godly sorrow, the godly sorrow of the Corinthian church, came after strong exhortations and tough confrontations and rebukes and 
conversations and letters and pleadings and speaking the truth in love, and open rebuke, which is better than love carefully concealed, the wounds of the friends that are precious and are so much better than the kisses of the enemy. God calls us to be exhorting one another daily, lest we be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And because Paul was involved in the community of the Corinthians' life, correcting them, leading them down the path of repentance, all of that work from Acts chapter 18 through the present time, it was, there was no loss because repentance took place. Verse 10 says, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And so, godly sorrow produces repentance. Now remember in verse 9 it says, Godly sorrow leads to repentance but it also produces repentance. Now, sorrow in and of itself, the worldly type sorrow, doesn't produce anything but bad feelings. But godly sorrow produces the about face and the change of mind and life. Since repentance is a change, both of thinking and action, we can tell if someone really has godly sorrow by looking at their life and seeing if there's been any repentance. Why? Because godly sorrow leads and produces repentance. That's why godly sorrow cannot be measured by tears or simply long conversations, but by what it produces in the long run. This repentance is so godly because it spurs from the goodness of God, Romans 2 says. The goodness of God leads us to repentance. Hodge writes, does this mean that we are saved by our repentance? Not exactly. Repentance is not the ground of our salvation, but it is part of it. And necessary condition of it. Those who repent are saved. The unrepentant perish. Repentance is therefore unto salvation. Spurgeon writes, Repentance must never be thought of as something we must do before we can come to God. Repentance describes what coming to God is. You can't turn towards God without turning from the things he's against. People seem to jump into faith very quickly nowadays, he writes. I do not disapprove of that happy leap, but still I hope my old friend repentance is not dead. I am desperately in love with repentance. It seems to be the twin sister of faith. Repentance, the twin sister of faith. 
And we are saved by grace, amen, through the conduit of faith. Real repentance acts. It, it acts. It responds to God. And Trapp wrote some rather harsh words about this. If thou repent with a contradiction, quoting Tertullian, church father, then God will pardon thee with contradiction. Forgive the old King James, right? Thou repentest and yet continues in thy sin, God will pardon thee and yet send thee to hell. There is pardon with contradiction. Worldly sorrow without repentance. Now, godly sorrow is salvation. Isn't that what Paul says? Salvation that is not to be regretted. Anyone who's turned to the Lord Jesus and had their sins forgiven them and the garment that they were wearing that was black that is then washed as white as snow and pure, they never sit there later on wringing their hands going, oh, that was a mistake. Those that have been forgiven and set free and liberated and born again and given a new nature and a new heart, a new inner man and inner woman, that is not to be regretted. It's rather to be rejoiced in. Joy, cheer. But worldly sorrow, on the other hand, a contrast, produces death. It produces condemnation, and it is to be regretted. Would you ask yourself today, in just letting the Holy Spirit examine your life, if you've shown worldly sorrow over your sin, or godly sorrow that brings repentance? Understand that without real repentance, there can be no real forgiveness. This is what Esau, the brother of Jacob, discovered, as Hebrews 12 says, that we need to be careful lest any one of us come short of the grace of God. Lest in any one of us there's any root of bitterness that would spring up and cause trouble and defile us. And then it says, like the profane person Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Esau is an example of worldly sorrow. Hungry, eating the bowl of lentils, or the stew rather that his brother repaired. Oh, I just got to have the world. I got to fill my flesh up. I'll give anything for the flesh to be satisfied. But then realizing the, the eternal consequence, wait, I don't get my inheritance? I don't get the blessing? Weeping for the wrong reasons. Sorrowful for the wrong reasons. Oh, come on, Dad, don't you have two blessings to give? Sorry, what I've spoke, I've spoke. 
A flood of tears is no substitute for a repentant heart. We remember this in Judas Iscariot. Matthew 27.3 tells us, Then Judas, after he'd betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, then Judas, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver. Seems like repentance, doesn't it? Seems like sorrow, doesn't it? Judas was sorry he'd betrayed Jesus. But it was not a sorrow that caused him to face up to what he'd done and accept the consequences and go and make amends. Making things right. Rather than seek God's forgiveness and restoration, Judas sulked off in his sorrow, avoided the consequences of his actions, and committed suicide. But then you have a very interesting story. You have a man named King Ahab, who was a king over Israel, one of the most wicked kings that Israel ever saw. 1 Kings 16 tells us that Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. It came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam that he took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. So just like last week, we learned that we're not to be unequally yoked together with non-believers and to worship in the temple of idols. And we looked at King Solomon, kind of that example of a king that turned from the living God because of women. And they got his heart and took his heart to go and worship idols. We see that that kind of set the stage for nearly every king that would follow thereafter. And certainly the case for wicked King Ahab. And it said there, as if it wasn't enough that he went and worshipped idols, he married Jezebel. And that name, Jezebel, that's, that's famous today, isn't it? For an, a wicked, immoral, seductress, pagan woman. She's always been a symbol of those things. In fact, 1 Kings 18, 19 said that she would have 450 prophets of the false god Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah eat at her table every day. 850 pagan prophets eating at the table of the king of Israel. In 1 Kings 19 Two, she threatens Elijah after he wins the contest on Mount Carmel. And she says to him, let the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of the other prophets I've killed by this time tomorrow. Just a, a wicked woman. Well, interesting, 1 Kings 21 tells us the story that wicked king Ahab looks out near one of his palaces and he sees a vineyard of his neighbor. The neighbor's name is Naboth and Ahab covets that beautiful vineyard. And so he goes to Naboth and he says, hey, can I buy your vineyard from you? It's so beautiful. I want to have it as part of my property, you know? And Naboth says, oh man, far be it from me to sell 
you know, the inheritance from my father's like, sorry, it's not for sale. So he goes home, wicked King Ahab, and he pouts. <laughs> Jezebel comes home, sees the storm cloud above his head, and says, hey, king of Israel, like all powerful one around here, why are you, what is the storm cloud about? You've got everything you want. I don't have the vineyard of Naboth next door. It's like, why don't you just take it? She says, by this time tomorrow, I'm going to have, she was all about the this time tomorrow. <laughs> I'm going to have that vineyard for you. And she schemes and plots and plans for a bunch of men to essentially come out of a feast and stone and kill Naboth. And soon enough, he gets the property. He has the vineyard just like he always wanted. And so Elijah came and prophesied over Ahab that his wife Jezebel would be splattered and that dogs would come lick her blood, that Ahab would die and the rest of his family would die horrible deaths. And it says this in 1 Kings 21, there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. He behaved very abominably, talking about the snowman, it's a Christmas thing for you. There was nothing Christmassy about today. I said abominable. <laughs> he behaved very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done, who the Lord cast out. So it was when Ahab heard the words of Elijah, he tore his clothes. And he put on sackcloth on his body. And he fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. How interesting that he moves towards the biblical appearance of fasting and mourning and grieving over his sin. As we fast in January, that will be one time that we just Get away from everything of this world and come seek the Lord and say, see if there be any wicked way in me, Lord. I got a clear mind, a clear stomach. I just want nothing more than to hear from you. And if there's sin in my life, I want it gone. And how interesting that when wicked, wicked, wicked King Ahab turned in grief and in mourning and fasting, Shows how serious you are, man. When you're fasting and you say, man, I am so hungry right now, but that doesn't even matter. I am more hungry to be right with the Lord. And so the word of the Lord came saying, see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he's humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days he's been wicked it will come in the days of his son and so what a word that the most wicked of men and the most wicked of women can have the holy spirit move in their life a godly sorrow that brings repentance to salvation never to be desired just as ahab repented from his sin Paul uses his self as an example that the Jews could still be saved. In 1 Timothy 1, he says, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. 
When Paul tells his testimony, he was a guy that was killing Christians. He killed Christians. He killed one of the first deacons, Stephen. He had Jesus appear to him and say, why are you persecuting me? And Paul would forever live with that, man, I am the chief of sinners. But he says, if I can be saved, anybody can be saved. If God can bring me to repentance, he can bring anybody to repentance. As This is an example, you guys. Can I share a couple stories with you? Well, I'm going to. There wasn't a no, but there wasn't a yes. There was a silence. Okay. A few years ago, a gal from the body gave me a book called The Cross and the Swastika. This book tells the story of the aftermath of the world in Europe during World War II, the war in Europe. Hitler had killed himself, but most of his Nazi leaders were still alive and had been captured by the Allied forces. They now faced trial under four indictments. First of all, being a party to conspiracy to wage aggressive war. Secondly, crimes against peace. Third, war crimes with wanton destruction and mistreatment of POWs. Fourth, crimes against humanity. Inhumane treatment of civilians extermination and persecution on racial or religious grounds from which we know six million Jews were exterminated and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of gypsies. Seventeen of Hitler's top men faced trial and most likely execution for their crimes. Their future seemed dim. Enter in Henry Gerek a United States Army chaplain and bearer of the good news of the gospel. Gurek was assigned to bring spiritual hope and guidance to these men and over the course of a year was able to clearly present the good news of the gospel of peace to a hopeless string of inmates. Quote, these men must be told about the Savior bleeding suffering, and dying on the cross for them, unquote, end quote, as Garek wrote in his journal. And so let's hear some of these stories of the gospel being preached to such guilty men. First of all was Fritz Sockel. He was the production and general for the allocation of labor. He was dubbed the most harsh slave driver since the Egyptian pharaohs. Gerk writes, he knelt down by his bed, imploring me to read the scriptures and to pray to him, or pray with him. Writing, unafraid and unashamed, he prayed with me at his bedside, generously ending our prayer by saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Then there was feared Marshal Keitel. He was the chief of high command armed forces. He memorized numerous verses of scripture which spoke of God's mercy to sinners. 
quote, he made a fine choice of Bible readings, hymns, and prayers, and read them himself aloud. He was unashamed to kneel at his bed and together with me make confession of his sins. On his knees and under deep emotional stress, he received the body and blood of our Savior in the bread and wine. With tears in his voice, he said, You have helped me more than you know. May Christ, my Savior, stand by me all the way. I need him so much. Then there was Albert Speer who was the Reich Minister for Armaments and War, the head of slave labor to produce arms. Albert Speer and Balder von Schirach, Schirach being the Hitler youth leader and the overbearing leader of Vienna, he was called, as well as Hans Fritsche, who was the head of broadcasting division and propaganda ministry, So those last three men you just saw, it's written, It touched my heart to see these three big men on their knees about to receive the Lord's Supper. I felt sure others' prayers were with me because it was not possible to win them to the foot of the cross without the intercession of God's people. I am convinced God worked a change in their hearts through the word that had been read and preached to them. And they were ready, as every penitent is, to ask God's forgiveness of sins for Jesus' sake. Gorek asked these three men, I now ask you before God, is this your sincere confession that you heartily repent of your sins, believe on Jesus Christ, and sincerely and earnestly purpose by the assistance of God the Holy Ghost, henceforth to amend your sinful life, then declare so by saying yes. With delight in his heart, the chaplain gave bread and wine to Fritsche, von Schirach, and Speer. Constantine von Neurath was the foreign minister from 1932 through 38 and the occupier of Czechoslovakia. He read Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 and saw that being born again was altogether a work of the Holy Spirit involving a personal repentance of the sins which separated him from God. That Christ paid the penalty of sins and it was up to him to ask for forgiveness and by faith, Receive Christ into his life. Chaplain Gorek recalled, As we went along, he manifested genuine interest. This led to a crisis experience when the old baron admitted his need of salvation. Foreign minister Joachim, or I don't, I think that might be the Spanish way of saying it. Joachim? Who knows German? Joaquin von Ribbentrop, from The Sound of Music. No, just kidding. He would eventually be first in command after Hitler. Hermann Goring would commit suicide via cyanide capsule on the execution date. His is a whole nother incredible story 
of unrepentance. But for nearly a year, von Ribbentrop had heard the chaplain proclaim Christ as the answer, talking of the cross and of the power of the blood of Jesus and explaining that faith is simply the channel through which God's grace is received. Ribbentrop could hold out no longer, seeking God's forgiveness and opening up his heart to Christ. Quote, One of my most heartening experiences was observing the slow and steady progress of Joachim von Ribbentrop, the diplomat, from cool indifference to a truly sincere Christian faith. Now, as often this does, this upset Frau Ribbentrop. And Gorek wrote, She certainly made it as difficult for me as she could through her letters. She wrote that she would offset my influence on her husband in every way she could. After the guilty verdict was given, the men were given a final chance to see their families. Gorek heard Ribbentrop plead with his wife and their children that they would be kept in the church and be brought up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. This statement coming from Ribbentrop is especially interesting to me because at the beginning of my work, Gorek writes, I discovered that the whole family had withdrawn from the church. Perhaps uncharitably, I labeled Frau von Ribbentrop the most ungodly woman I'd ever met. She was a Jezebel, in a sense. I heard her husband plead with her, Have the children baptized, sweetheart. Finally, she gave in. And I helped her arrange for the baptism of their two boys at a neighboring church. Fritz Sockel's wife would promise her husband that their children should stay close to the cross of Jesus Christ. When execution day came and Gorek said his final prayer with von Ribbentrop, he says, I heard him say that he put all his trust in the blood of the lamb that taketh away the sins of the world. While yet in his cell, he asked God to have mercy on his soul. As Ribbentrop stood at the gallows, Ribbentrop's final statement ended with, God have mercy on my soul. Then he turned to Henry Gorek and said, as the author says, my heart still warms when I think of this. I'll see you again. Paul says, if God can save the souls of Tarsus, then he can save anybody. When the Holy Spirit works godly sorrow that leads and produces repentance, one will be saved from their sins and the wrath of God. And that is not to be rejected. If God can save the Sauls, he can save Hitler's henchmen. He could save the Ayman al-Zrawani's, the top dogs of Al-Qaeda, Abu Yahya. He can save the Mullah Omar 
the Taliban's spiritual leader and head of state of the Islamic Emirates of Afghanistan. If God can save the souls of Tarsus, he can save Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the leader of ISIS, who's become the most notorious terrorist leader since Osama bin Laden. And if he can save them, heck, maybe he can even save Frau von Ribbentrop. (laughs) Maybe he can save Rory Rogers. Maybe he can save you. As we close, I want to look at one final example of godly sorrow. The man David. And if you can take your Bible and turn to 2 Samuel 12, while you're flipping there, I'll set it up very quickly. You'll remember that David was staying at home in the season when all of the kings would go out to war. But he stayed home and went out on his rooftop and there below his roof was a woman on another roof and she was bathing and she was very beautiful to behold. And first of all, he asked who that woman was and his servant says, that is Bathsheba, the, son of a, or the daughter of Ahithophel, saying, that's, that's someone's daughter, the wife of Uriah, that's somebody's wife. And he said, bring her to me. David lie with her. David impregnated her. And when he found out she was pregnant, he developed a scheme and he brought back Uriah from the battlefield. He was, Uriah was one of David's mighty men of valor, Bathsheba's husband. Brought Uriah back home and said, why don't you go and lay with your wife tonight? And of course, Uriah, being a man of valor, says, the armies of the Lord are out there on the battlefield. I can't go lie with my wife as they sleep out in the cold. And so David's plot continued as he made a feast and he got Uriah drunk and he tried to get Uriah to then go into his wife Bathsheba and he still was faithful and would not go, uh, you know, kind of betray his brothers in arms. Instead, he slept outside the door of David. And so finally David said, you know what, I I can't get him to go lie with his wife, then you know what, I'm going to kill him. And he sent Uriah into the fiercest heat of the battle deep below the walls of, I believe it was the Philistines at the time, and then called for a withdrawal, for a retreat, leaving only Uriah there underneath the wall. And all of the archers aimed for Uriah and pierced him with their arrows. Well, David's plot and plan seemed to work, getting away scot-free, right? Except that the Lord knew. The Lord knew as David brought Bathsheba into his own home and loved her as if she was his own wife. He called the child his own. Well, 2 Samuel 12 says that the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to David and he came to him and said to him, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his own bosom. It was like a daughter to him. A widow whammy. (laughs) And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare for the wayfaring man who came to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who'd come to him. 
So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who's done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for that lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anoint you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives, and your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You've killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you've taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. There says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you've given great occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who's born to you shall surely die. And so we see confrontation and open rebuke against David's sin of immorality, debauchery, and murder, not to mention lying and heaps of other sins. But when the confrontation of the Holy Spirit took place, David was sorrowful and confessed his sin. And as we have the worship team come back up, we're going to speak in just a minute a little bit more about David's sorrow But we want to remember that this is actually called godly sorrow. It's called godly sorrow because the source is God. In Acts 11, it says that God granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. In 2 Timothy, Paul writes, If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, The source of godly sorrow that leads to repentance is our good, good God. And I would pray today that the Holy Spirit's hand would be heavy upon your heart for your sins. That you would remember the words that you've heard from the Bible of what sin is. That you know you are guilty before a holy, righteous, pure God. And he is a just God who will deal justly with sin. He has dealt justly with sin at the cross where both mercy and justice are poured out. Because of Jesus shedding his blood, we can have mercy. Atonement for our sins. Washed away. But because of the blood of the cross, justice was also met. 
upon a substitute, upon the just dying for the unjust. Jesus Christ dying for me. The next verse of our text said that godly sorrow brings about all kinds of fruits of repentance. It brings out diligence to follow after the Lord. It brings forth a clearing of ourselves. It brings forth an anger against our sin and that we did that to the Lord. It brings forth fear of the Lord, which is to hate all evil. It brings forth vehement desire and zeal that we would be on fire for the Lord and against sin. It brings forth vindication, which is a legal term speaking of justification and justice being done. And oh, that you would have a heart this morning. Not just that you would be forgiven of your sins today, but as God has put his hand on your heart and pointed out your sin that you would want justice to be done by a holy God. You would want vindication. And you'll find vindication at the cross. The goodness of God leads us to repentance. And so before we sing this song, it's my prayer that you would have a heart to repent today. Maybe for the first time you came through those doors and you were not a born again Christian who's had your sins washed away. It says when Jesus began his ministry, he began preaching the kingdom of God and he would say, repent and believe in the gospel. And today that message is preached here. Will you turn from your sins and change your mind justifying your sin and letting your sin and making up excuses for why your sin should continue and that you would turn from your sin and say, no, I see my sin as God sees it now. It is wrong. It is an affront to him. It is a rebellion against him. It will end in death. I see that. And I see that Jesus took that death upon him at the cross. And now I must follow him. Repent, will you, today. And believe in the gospel. If this is you, and maybe for the first time, you would come to Jesus in repentance. With a godly sorrow over your sin. Or if this is you today and you are a Christian, you are a man or a woman after God's own heart as David was, but you have blown it. You've been living in immorality. You've been living in lies. You've been living in adultery. You've been living in disobedience. Maybe even doing a wonderful job in covering it up. Maybe you've even let it out and told people. Maybe you've confessed it, but there's been no repentance. Maybe you've had the times of the weeping with crocodile tears, but you're still doing it. That was never godly sorrow. And today we will cry out together for the Holy Spirit to bring godly sorrow. 
Josh, can you enter in a scripture, Psalm 51? And we're going to read this psalm together. This is the psalm that David wrote after he was confronted by the prophet Nathan. After he was moved to repentance, he wrote this psalm of confession, this psalm of repentance. And we don't want to just read it together with a religious action, trying to just be religious. But if you would read it today with me, don't read it if it's nothing to you. But if you want the Holy Spirit to work in you, just a godly grief over your sin, past sin, present sin, secret sin, sins that you don't even know you've committed, that He is sorrowful over. You've grieved the Holy Spirit. Will you read this with me? You can read it with your lips. You can read it out loud. You can read it in your heart. And during this time, if you want to just come up and just bow down at the altar and just come before the mercy seat of the Lord Jesus where His blood was spilled and where He ever lives to make intercession for you, where He stands in the gap for you, where He is your attorney and He is the mediator between God and man and you just want to come and bow before Him in a godly sorrow. The front is available. We're going to read through verse 17 out loud together. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak, and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. And in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, 
the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Let's close with a song this morning. If that's your heart today, why don't you stand? Let's stand and just sing these songs of broken heart and contrite spirits of godly sorrow that's produced and led repentance in our life, leading to salvation, bringing forth salvation, not to be regretted. As we sing of this good, good goodness of God, there are some here today that God has put in your mind something on the forefront. It's almost like a, a lens or like you're wearing glasses and what you see in that lens is just the, the sin issues that he's bringing before you, your guilt before him. And that's, it's like you might close your eyes, but it's still there today. And as you're shown that you've sinned against him and you're guilty of him, and that there's forgiveness if you will just turn from your sins in brokenness and let him heal your sin and make you clean and make you white, clothing you in white garments of cleanliness. And he wants to do that work in you today as he wants to work godly sorrow in your heart that would bring repentance. But today, maybe this is for you today, you are not willing. You're not willing. And you're resisting him today. In Romans, Paul says, right before he talks about the good, good God, he says, do you despise God's patience and long-suffering and gentleness to you? He's brought you to this place to hear this message today, to hear of Nazis that killed people, that he worked forgiveness in their heart, and they are saved in an eternity with the, the Lord and Savior but if you reject him today, you will go to hell with Satan and his angels. If you will stand in your own righteousness and your own self-strength, you will perish. But if you will fall upon Jesus today and be broken and receive him, coming to him and seeing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance... He is a good, good father, a good, good God who sent his only son to die. That if you would just trust in Jesus, if you would just believe Jesus, if you would just obey Jesus and rest in him, you will not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, just, let's just keep our heads bowed and eyes closed right now and just a, an attitude of prayer and just feel the Lord's prophesying over us right now that, you know, I told the joke of the lumber salesman that was stealing lumber and he went and confessed to the priest and I kind of said, we don't do that here. And, you know, we don't confess to a priest as if you have to do that to have your sins forgiven and, and then you'll be, you know, saved. We don't, you don't have to do donate alms and do certain penance things but 
But there is confession of our sin before the Lord to be forgiven. And the Bible speaks of confession to each other to be healed and cleansed. And just where you're at today, maybe today you would make the good confession that you want Jesus to wash away your sins. That you've been found today to be a sinner. And God's been working in your heart today, godly sorrow. You look back over your life and you see like a tornado went through your life and left a wake of damage and destruction and ruined relationships and broken broken things that, that are just cracked and, and shattered. And the greatest of those broken things is your relationship with God this morning. But all of that can be healed today. He can restore the damage from your destructive life. He can cause the crops to grow back in in the wake of your disastrous life. And maybe you might not be an utter pagan, but even if you are standing in your own self-righteousness here today, you have the same damage in your life and you'll go to the same hell. But maybe you're here today and you would make the good confession to Jesus Christ today. And if that's you, I want to ask you to lift up your hand where you're at and say, Rory, that's me. God brought me here for this message today for me to hear of a godly sorrow in my heart that makes me turn from my sin and turn to the living God. And if that's you, lift your hand up and I'm just, I don't normally do this, and this isn't something ultra-religious, but I was so moved by this. This is the confession that Gurek asked the three prisoners. And I want to ask you, as you would lift your hand up in repentance today, I now ask you before God, is this your sincere confession? That you heartily repent of your sins? Believe on Jesus Christ and sincerely and earnestly purpose by the assistance of God the Holy Ghost from this point on to amend your sinful life. If that's you, declare so by lifting your hand and saying yes. Just where you're at. You make the good confession, lift up your hand where you're at. And say, I've spent enough of my life pretending. I've spent enough of my life living in worldly sorrow. My life's never changed. There's been lots of tears, but there's never been transformation. Where you're at today, just lift your hand up. Beautiful, the Lord sees you that are lifting up your hands. This isn't a religious thing. You're not saved by lifting up your hand, but this is just you saying to your brothers and sisters and before the Lord, yes, Lord, yes, I confess you as my Savior from my sins, but also today I confess you as the Lord of my life. You know, the Bible says that there's more joy in the heavens when one sinner repents, as you are right now, than when one self-righteous person that looks like he has it all together gets a little more puffed up in his own goodness. There is so much joy in heaven right now as you make this confession. 
Let's sing this worship song to the Lord and let's just praise God for those that have come to Jesus today. Maybe even for just a a renewal in their heart and their relationship with Jesus as David had such a renewal when he wrote the song. One last word. At this church, man, we want to understand just that it doesn't end with us here. As wonderful as it is for us to have godly sorrow that brings repentance and to be forgiven and to have relationship with Christ Jesus restored and to have the hope of heaven and eternity with him. When David confessed his sin to the Lord, he says, Then I will teach sinners your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. And when Jesus had risen from the dead, he said, the Bible wrote it, and it was necessary for the Christ to come and suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all the nations. And so as we are just like hot air balloons today, just thank you, Lord, that you've worked repentance and you're working healing and you've restored relationship and salvation. Man, let those hot air balloons just take us over there to, to you know, out into Prineville and over into our region and out through our country and to Haiti, and to Nepal, and to the farthest points in this world, that sinners would know that they can be forgiven and know their creator. Amen? That's a vision of this church. God bless you guys. We hope to see you this Thursday night at our Christmas Eve service, 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. God bless you all.